Hello and welcome to this episode of Fresh Art Box. You're listening to Box Art FM. This is your host Bhakti. And today we have with us a very special guest. Most people know him as the driving force behind Reproduce Artists, which in my opinion is an organization that forms the backbone of the Indian experimental music scene. He's a fantastic videographer, visual artist. He's a great chef, but most importantly, he's a lovely human being. Please welcome the one and only Rana Ghosh. Ab aap sun rahe hain Box Out FM. Har waqt, har jagah. Naye zamane ka naya radio. Rana, uh, welcome to Box Out. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah, I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for doing this as I said. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Are you in Delhi? Not at all. I'm in no. Goa still. Oh wow, no. that's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been here. I've been on extended uh sojourn, but I think I'm leaving in like 2 weeks. I had to Right. Uh sort out my vaccines and figure out how to exit this country given this very strange landscape of logistics in uh, in a pandemic. But um yeah, I think in 2 weeks just Yeah. Right. Do you do you listen to Indian radio? Um not contemporary, no. I remember when I first came to India 20 years ago, I remember hearing Doordarshan a lot, just like, you know, all India radio like mm-hmm. everywhere actually. But just kind of as an observer, um it was on, but I I kind of missed that to be honest. But no, in terms of like online or contemporary terrestrial radio, not so much sadly. No. I uh I don't. Right, okay. Hmm. So um you shifted from economics to arts, right? Like um sort of. Sort of. Yeah, I don't I don't I'm not sure. I uh I still look at whatever I do professionally through the lens of economics um just because to me it's always been about decision making and risk. But um yeah, I suppose I just find creative industries a very interesting place to observe how those things fold or unfold I should say with different people making different decisions etc etc but um so would you, would you say that the lens through which you look at the world is largely shaped by economics absolutely yeah definitely how how was it to you know transition from that field to this and how is it going now um it was pretty natural i um i you know i guess started with like cameras many years ago when i was a lot younger um i'd always kind of used cameras uh, since i was like i don't know if, uh 11 12 i guess my father always had film in the fridge and there was always 35 mm cameras in the house and so um my sister at the time about the time she's still my sister but at the time she was in high school with me it overlapped for a period and uh she was part of like a uh like the yearbook team you know these like i don't know uh these books that come out every year about like that graduating class or what have yes. you yes, so yes, she yes. she like yeah so she volunteered as a photographer and in that school there was a dark room and uh she would stay after school and because we were in the same school my father would come pick us up at the same time and i would just stick around and i remember seeing my sister do this this magic in the dark room and i was just transfixed and so yeah because of her i started well because of both my father and my sister i guess really I started to take photographs myself and process my own film and print my own images 
And it was just really um, addictive, honestly. It just was really this kind of strange alchemy of seeing this image emerge on this piece of paper in developer fluid and then stopping the process and fixing it and all of that, you know. Um, I was just really drawn to it. So um, I guess, you know, a visual language was always there, or at least from a, you know, from a adolescent point. Um, but, you know, it was just always something that was there. I, did, I never, I just had fun with it. And then I, I didn't take any photographs for about, I guess, four years. I was kind of living this domestic life, uh, doing a master's degree. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, you know, we were just kind of doing our thing. And I, I think creative things weren't really part of the program, I suppose, just because I was occupied in a very committed relationship. And so, yeah, you know, I don't know. It just didn't, I didn't think about it either. But then soon after that, I ended up... Um, coming to India uh, to finish my master's at the time in economics. And I was working with the UN at the time. And uh, I, I, I basically was doing this thing with, with those guys, but I was also finishing my master's. And to finish my master's, I had to get a bunch of data. This is all pre-internet from a place in West Delhi, Pusa, which you might be aware of, the Pusa Institute. It's probably kind of close to where you are, I think. I'm not sure. I think it is. Anyway. Um, yeah, so at the time I had to uh, get that data. And when I finished my master's and finished this thing with the UN, I realized that all, my entire master's thesis was kind of based on data and data alone. I'd never spent any time with, with farmers, which is what my research was looking at. I was looking at decision-making processes amongst farmers when it comes to genetically modified seeds. And um, I felt like a fraud. So I wanted to actually spend some time with farmers to understand really how they make decisions and all those things. So I did, and that's kind of where these, this strange thing starts, is because I, um, I had a mentor uh, for this grant that I got to, to do this research, and he suggested using a video camera to, um, oh. to document my, my interviews with you know, multiple farmers and different people. Mm -hmm. and, when I, and when I did that, and I also, before I left for India, I, on eBay I bought like a 35-millimeter camera kit after a long time, a Pentax ME Super which I still have, and um, and promptly realized that at the time in India, black and white film was about 25 rupees a roll. Um, and I just went crazy and just started shooting a ton of photographs and videotaping all this stuff. And the two started kind of feeding into one another. Um, and I think suddenly I, I remembered, oh, yeah, I really enjoy this. But I was still at the time, the, the irony is that it all came out of my research. So the, the two things have always been kind of intertwined. I don't really separate them, they're just a different way of um, you know, expressing or presenting uh, information, I suppose, you know, based on my observations. So, yeah. And then, as, and then you know, um, at the end of that tenure um, as a grantee, I, I ended up editing a short video of my research findings. And, and, you know, the people who awarded me the grant, they were like, how the hell did you do this? Because, um, <laughs> you know, I'd never cut video, but I just kind of, you know, learned. Um, I guess this is pre-YouTube. So I don't know, just on like the internet, I just saw a few things or read a few things about the basics of how to use Adobe Premiere 6.5 at that time. And yeah, and, I, and they were quite um, surprised and I suppose pleased. And, and that's when things got somewhat strange. They ended up for the next, well, almost 11 years, I was a very, uh, well, I was as a consultant for these guys and I was all over the world. Wow. I was based out of, yeah, I was based out of Delhi and, uh, but I was, uh, I was a lot, I spent a lot of my time in Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, all over India, um, 
different parts of the world. And I was also still um, kind of actively pursuing academic stuff. This is just before I did my PhD, so there would be also conferences I'd be attending. And a lot of stuff is happening. I was basically living out of a suitcase for the better part of nine years. Um, but, but, you know, shooting stuff for clients. And, and they paid me a lot of money. And it was, it, was, it was great in many ways, but it was also kind of not bullshit, but it was kind of, I mean, I was just, I was basically a commercial videographer, you know, a very well-paid commercial videographer that was traveling all over the place. And, you know, it sounds great, but the work wasn't really mine. You know, I mean, I might have lended a signature, <clears throat> perhaps in terms of the edit style. And I was trying a lot of stuff, keyframes and multiple channels. And they, they liked it. You know, it looked pretty cool, mm -hmm. but the stories weren't mine. So I guess, if anything, it was more a technical exercise in, um, you know, pre and post-production. Yeah. Like, I just had to do that um, to the best of my... And as a one-man, a one-person crew, I would, you know, do everything <laughs> myself in terms of mm -hmm. shooting it and sound and editing. Um so yeah, that way I think it was it was deeply influential, not only in terms of like the visual stuff, but also how I, yeah, I'm a control freak, I guess. <laughs> but um, yeah, which which brings us to you know to finally when I finished my PhD, I uh, yeah, I just was like, well, I could do this for a while, I could keep on doing this, and and um, but ultimately, what's the point? Because I'm not my. Like, I'm not telling my own stories, you know. I'm not, and um, and life's short. And I felt like if I don't, if I don't just take this leap, I suppose, away from the security of like, you know, these these daily consultant rates and being flown all over the world, um, I'm just going to keep on doing this, and nothing's going to change. So I did, and I also realized that I didn't, you know, at the time. Um, over the course of the PhD, I realized that an academic career is probably not where um, my time was best spent. It wasn't as though I was not capable or I didn't enjoy it, but there were some elements that I found deeply distressing just in terms of how um, research is funded and the whole dynamics and conferences and, and ultimately the whole tenure track thing of academics and what one has to do to, to, to remain as an academic. And it just seemed a bit of a indulgent scam. And I just, you know. But I, I did appreciate like the the practice and, and what it offered me in terms of an insight into, you know, being afforded a, a very focused period of five years to really unpack something and and think about it a lot and a lot <laughs> and really just you know give it that time as a, as a process. It was also deeply influential. I think just how I think. At this time, uh, you conceived the idea of reproduce artists? No, not exactly. Well, indirectly, I suppose I did, because um, what I was looking at in my doctoral research was, well, ultimately, it was still looking at genetically modified organisms in India and, um, and regulation, uh, how that was regulated in India as a case study. But the, the underlying kind of um, framework of all of that was, was looking at risk, that word risk, and trying to understand how, um, you know, nation states, governments, whatever you want to call them, um, release new technologies that have uncertain consequences, you know, be it, say, vaccines um, or GM crops or nanotechnology or, you know, airplanes. I mean, anything that's like a technology-driven innovation that no one knows what's going to happen and how it's going to affect people. <clears throat> we have to assess it somehow to release it. And every country does that in different ways. And at the core of, of all of what I was doing was that, trying to understand, well, how does 
how does this how do these notions of risk how do these understandings understandings of risk kind of um, play with technology and I think that's that always and yeah so I mean I spent a lot of time looking at that and you know some elements were very technical others were more philosophical um, just in terms of an uncertain future and what that means to the human psyche and many things but I think um, at the core of that was was this notion of new technologies that have uncertain consequences and how people who have vested interests either because they want to present something to a public or they want to showcase it on the other end or sell it either as a creator or a, a broker as if you will um, how do they do it <clears throat> so I, I mean to answer your question I guess the catalyst really was um, in 2007 I think in Bombay when I was I was staying there and um, I was in and out of Bombay I was living in this village in uh, just near about 80 kilometers out of Nagpur in uh, Vidarbha interior of Maharashtra but I was living out of Bombay and um, I remember at the time I believe it was 2007 it may have been eight she probably was eight. I don't know. Anyway, um, IPL cricket, I don't remember, but IPL cricket was starting in, in this country. And I remember being, you know, if you cross that bridge or that kind of, uh, that boundary from across the Mahim Creek into Bandra coming from south to north, there's these masses of hoardings, um, huge hoardings. I remember seeing the IPL hoardings and, and seeing Sony on the corner of a lot of these things. And I was, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I remember going home one day and just out of curiosity, just wondering, well, how much money did they pay for the broadcast rights? And suddenly realizing that the numbers were astronomical. Um, and then thinking about sponsorship and then having this idea of bringing a band to India by getting a sponsor on board. Just a really kind of a <laughs> nucleus of an idea. Wow. Um, That's a but it, it kind big of was, connection. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it, it was the same thing. It's like, here's this yeah. new idea. <laughs> in terms of like this form of music, let's say, not that, you know, music was new to India by any stretch of the imagination. Of course it wasn't, but in, in the rush of maybe wanting to showcase something, if I could find that individual or group of people who might find that interesting and they would gain from it some way monetarily or whatever it might be, um, I could probably do it. it was, mm. So, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, so you have a, a seed technology and you have a company like, I don't know, Mahiko Monsanto, which is the Indian arm of Monsanto in India, and they want to license it and sell it in India. They're excited and they want to do it and they're going to make a bunch of money. And it's the same thing. Well, so you have this kind of musical form or idea that's not from here necessarily, but somebody sees value in bringing it here so they can make some money. It was the same. Like to me, it was the same thing. <laughs> I didn't really see it as being very different. Uh, and, but at the core of that were decision-making processes and ultimately risk-taking, you know, as much as like Definitely. a company like Mahiko you know, as, as much as a company like Mahiko might, might want to bring uh, this particular variety of cotton seed, BT cotton, to India um, and go through all the licensing and all the hoops and all the risk assessment, uh, it'd be the same as somebody who wanted to pay for um, bringing a band or covering the cost of bringing a band from outside of India to India where there's no audience and how do they make their money back and is it worth the risk? And it's the same. For me, it was just the same thing. Uh, I didn't really distinguish the two. So... Um, I did that and ended up being a band called uh, Black Lips, this, um, this band from Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I've been asked this question a few times, so I don't, I don't know if I don't know bore you. I don't know. But basically, um, they came and they, they played their music and their show 
Um, but the thing is, is that historically their lives at the time were very kind of violent and involved a lot of uh, bodily fluids and nudity. And, and I'd shown all this to the, to the person who um, ultimately uh, helped book these shows in India. Uh, at the time, it was a very an early stage of, uh, of OML at the time. It was like four or five people. Um, this is like 2008, I guess. And I showed the former, um, I guess, head, CEO. I'm not sure what you would call that person. Um, the person work in charge. As far as I can, mm-hmm. Person in charge, yeah. I, sh- you know, I showed them this video content of them playing a show, and it was, it was what it was. You know, there was just <laughs> all kinds of things happening. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, um, and I guess maybe in retrospect, I was, I was curious about this as an exercise. Like, what if you present the most obviously off-putting uh, front-facing presentation of an art form um, to somebody who can then speculate in his or her own way about what it might be worth to them. What happens next? You know? mm. And so <laughs> maybe that was why. I also like the music a lot. I still do. I mean, it's great. But um, there's also that. So, But anyway, they took it on. And, um, and then I... They were signed to, I don't know if Vice still does, but Vice had a record label at that time. I think they might still do. I'm not sure. Um, This is way before their India entry. And even before, like, Vice became this, you know, incredibly, um, I don't want to say influential, although sadly it might be the case, but uh, larger scale media, you know, behemoth, Mm. spanning video and print and, and many things, but of course mostly online. This is before all of that. So... Um, they were just starting their video stuff. I think at that time they had released, uh, I think just two or three films, uh, mostly produced by, or directed by the co-founders, uh, Sarush Alvi in particular. Um, and yeah, but because the Black Lips were on that record label, I ended up getting a producer on board from Vice and I and this guy shot the whole tour. Oh, wow. And I think that was the first time that I was doing something with a video camera that actually meant something a lot more to me personally because mm-hmm. I kind of imagined this this um, situation and then I mean essentially um, put the pieces together to make it happen and then documented it <clears throat> and I was pretty sure that whatever was going to happen would be um, something worth watching <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, you know I just instinctively felt that well you know I'd watch it if, <laughs> if nobody else <laughs> I think I'd watch it and that was enough um, anyway they, they also paid me so it just all worked out but in the end, yeah, they, um, they uh, well, they had a show in Chennai and um, they kind of, uh, they kind of, I mean, for the first four shows, they're very timid and I think, and very respectful. I, I think they, they didn't want to cause, um, how to say it, like a lot of uh, um, shock or, you know, they didn't, they really toned themselves down. But I could see it that they were just, they were struggling because they were just constantly limiting themselves. And I think by the time they get to Chennai, they just kind of, were themselves and that involved, you know, uh, one of the band members playing guitar with his, uh, <laughs> um, with, 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 with himself. And, and then, you know, and then one, you remember throwing I the like bass. I like how you framed that. And, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And, um, and then jumping to the crowd and a number of things and, you know, the crowd thoroughly enjoying themselves, but then, you know, clearly there are some concerns in a city like Chennai and, um, it transpired that, uh, well, a number of things transpired. I mean, I guess the first thing is that the, um, the people who sponsored this particular event, they were, well, you know, upset and they, and they pulled the funding, which affected 
the company that kind of brokered this entire tour, which was not, you know, intentional, of course, but I think they were just shocked. And uh, then also, right. And then I think also there was like the police were called because a lot of people were upset, basically. (laughs) I'm laughing because I mean, but it's it's, (laughs) so, but it's the same thing. So, you know, to, to react to this, I had to, I realized that, okay, this is, this is a problem. But I think I remember being, I mean, it's all documented also, it's all there, but it's, I remember just being very calm because I think part of me almost anticipated it in a way. I wasn't sure. uh, And I certainly, you know, wasn't going to instigate anything or or suggest anything, but it just happened. And um, I realized that I have to get them out of the state now, like immediately to avoid police uh, custody and get out of police jurisdiction. Uh, state jurisdiction so yeah i did and we you know i hired two cabs and we drove to bangalore all night and that was that and they flew out the next day then a bunch of stuff happened where uh people came and threatened them and that's a whole other strange story but you know basically this is ultimately it's again it's you know people take these risks on the basis of their speculative incentives and what they might imagine may happen when you do such things and to me, it applied equally to new technologies in agriculture as it did to, to pop culture. I didn't really see much of a difference. So ultimately, it was just an exercise in my PhD, but it, it inadvertently kind of uh, deeply influenced um, how I looked at what I could do with a camera in particular. And also the, the thrill of, of showcasing live music. Because it was, you know, as much as it might sound a bit uh, messed up and, um, you know, uh, in terms of people's safety and welfare, it was also, you know, I can't lie, it was like, um, it was a very buzzy headspace. You know, you have to think fast, and you have to fix things, you know. <laughs> and this is a bit of an extreme example, perhaps, because, you know, I don't know no, what would happen if they got arrested. That really but, um, makes me think, um, is it important to understand things to appreciate them? Like, especially in terms of art, what do you think? I suppose so, but I don't, I prefer not to understand them. I prefer to just just execute and then forge an understanding before I can even start to appreciate. I, and I think that's what I'm saying is that the, my appreciation is more about the underlying decisions that one makes to do these things. That's what I find the most interesting mm-hmm. and always has been. And that's, again, very, I think, influenced by my, uh, you know, my, my work as a academic, as an economist, whatever you want to call it. It, you know, mm-hmm. it really has influenced how I look at the world. But um just to finish this thought, yeah, it was at the end of that process that I realized that, okay, I think there's, there's something I need to explore a bit more here. And, um, and that's what I did. So, but to answer your question specifically, the catalyst for that happened about a year and a half later when I was in Delhi and I took that flat that, you know, the same flat in GK2 that I've given up to finish writing my PhD. This is October, 2010. And, um, you know, I, I had friends in Delhi and I was hanging out with one of them, my friend Samrat, who I'll hopefully we'll see soon in Spain, actually, on the way home. Um, and he played me a record by this gentleman, Charanjit Singh. And that just coincided with me finishing PhD and, and preparing myself to enter a different phase. I, I knew it was going to happen, that I was going to try to do something with cameras and, and music. I just wasn't quite sure what. And this just kind of arrived uh, in my ears, in my life. And... If anything, that was probably truly the catalyst for whatever uh, reproduce became because I had to, when I met him, ultimately, when Samrat and I met him and I rolled camera and shot the whole thing and 
and as that video was seen by more and more people, um, I realized that this is just the beginning of a, a longer process of exploring what this person might be able to do both on stage. He never played that music live, obviously. Well, not obviously, but he hadn't, you know, on stage, but also on, on camera. And it just suited me. It's exactly what I was kind of imagining in, in a more abstract way, but suddenly it just became very real. So essentially to make that film, I had to, you know, I had to manage him and I had to book him. And I had to do all that music biz stuff, which again was a complete extension of my research. It was the same thing. And suddenly now I'm, I'm brokering talent in new markets who don't really know what to expect, but are interested because they can sell tickets and, you know, it's the same thing <laughs> playing that role. But I, but it was for me, I just, I, it's just far more interesting to be, uh, and as to do it in an applied sense, as opposed to just think about it as an academic, I'd rather just do it, <laughs> you know, rather than like write about it, I'd rather just do it and, and, mm -hmm. and then think about it and, you know, quickly also uh, and carefully, it's just far more valuable to me. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think there's much um, precedence of bringing a man who was 72 years old with his wife uh, with like $20,000 worth of vintage synthesizers to play this completely unique form of music to what ultimately became crowds of 10,000 people in festivals and MoMA in the States. And just, you know, it just, it just started happening very quickly, but it was rewarding. I mean, again, because sure, on the one hand, it's interesting. And um, I, I took a lot of, um, I suppose, delight from just uh, thinking about what was happening and observing it and, and um, being analytical about what I was seeing what it meant in terms of culture, in terms of the business side of it, in terms of the curation aspect of it, all of those things. Uh, but also just thinking about what, what this all means in terms of the general sentiment of what uh, contemporary Indian music appears to mean to a global audience. And I think that was really what, what kind of um, consolidated this desire to think in a more, uh, I guess, compartmentalized way about sort of agency of sorts. I hesitate to call it reproducing agency, but um, I suppose in some in some ways it has been at least, maybe still is, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I just saw a really interesting challenge uh, and it was that, it was like, well, is there a way to challenge uh, maybe how the rest of the world, or at least, you know, certain parts of the world, depending, hmm. might consider what contemporary Indian pop culture might be, you know, aside from the film industry, Bollywood, or kind of typical classical, you know, sitar. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, but for the most part, those are the two kind of reference points, right? Bollywood and classical music. And um, mm. just this thinking knew that there was a lot more, but no one like really a new prototype that you're offering to people, that this is also possible and this is also interesting. That's right. And this is like, might be you know, eight years sorry. ago. Sorry. It might be, yeah, exactly. It might not be. Mm. But that's not for me to, you know, my role was to, and this is where, you know, this is the whole risk element is how do you present these ideas to other brokers in a way that, you know, seeps their incentives um, in terms of not just their expectations, but also a certain level of ignorance, perhaps. I mean, I don't say ignorance in a condescending way. It's just that, you know, you might not know and maybe there is some value and maybe the people that you may try to reach in Paris or Berlin 
or wherever it might be, New York, maybe there's some value that you see in presenting this new chapter to other people, you know? So, yeah, essentially it was that. I mean, it's a bit of a long answer to your question, but th there, you know, there are some defined chapters. I, I don't know how else to answer that question. So, but yeah, I mean, the short version is um, video cameras, um, <laughs> economics, <laughs> uh, and India, and just you know, right. very fast yeah. Yeah. No, but that that brings me to another question about reproduce artists, which is um, I've seen uh, a lot of reproduce gigs happening at really experimental spaces. Like uh, this one gig that I attended, it was like a garage sort of a place. But uh, these are not the traditional places of performance, I think, I would say. Yeah. So what is yeah. what is the connection of art with the space that is that it is put in or presented in? I think there are two things. Like I think the first thing again it echoes my own understanding of um I think when you take risks you're you you internalize them and if the risks uh, appear to be more um uncertain. I mean risks are all by construction they're uncertain but in terms of outcomes of those risks and what the risks that you take. But when you take certain risks, you, you, you internalize them more and the outcomes become more a part of your understanding of the world around you. I feel, I think there are certain catalysts that's, you know, that have resulted as the outcomes of decisions that people make that leave an impact on people. And um, there are many factors as to, you know, why that might be the case, but at a very basic level, I, I felt, and I, I guess I still do feel, that if you think carefully about the surroundings um, of where you're experiencing something and the timing and um, you know, the entire like presentation of it, what it feels like and what it looks like, um, it, it just creates a, a far more fertile ground for your memory to take over. But the second thing is maybe the more important, well, I'm not sure if it's a more important thing, but it's in how do you score that? How do you score that memory? Um, how do you present an audio, an auditory cue or series of cues to internalize it using a whole other sensory set of tools? How do you do that? And my thought, because um, we, we did a lot of, I mean, 300, I don't know. It's been a while, obviously, because of the pandemic, but you know, we, we did a lot of them. And I think the core of it was, was that, like, I don't, because a person like John Anjit, I worked with him and he was so clear with his vision of what he was, what he had done. And at the age of 72, watching him perform and being completely at ease with the fact that, sure, at this point in my life, yes, this would happen. I know. Like, it was just really quite like, not bizarre on the one hand, but also deeply inspiring to see this man do what he was doing. Just because of the pure conviction that he had about his creation, I, I just felt, you know, that... And I heard other people who were making work that it echoed that sentiment. I felt, you know, I felt for what that's worth. It's, again, it's me and what I'm feeling, but I felt that. And I felt there was a, enough talent um, around me to sustain showcasing um, multiple instances of that. And not, not in terms of events, but multiple instances of these people amongst others in a event. And so I guess essentially, I mean, multiple genres, different kinds of music. It shouldn't all just be like, you know, rap. Or, well, give me anything. 
Um, but that the core element is that understanding that I'm I'm making this work because <laughs> I may be just like shit scared um, and nervous, <laughs> um, and I don't really know what I'm doing, but. I I want to do this. I want to present this. And I, I don't know what people will think because it's not what people might usually hear in a, a live concert, whatever, when you call it a setting. So those two things, you know, it's the space is the one thing, but then also the music. And I think those two things combined, it's it's that again. It's like you you kind of assess all these risks, both of the performer, but then also you know, for me as a, I guess, a producer, an event producer, and you... You, at least I can speak for myself, I, you, well, I imagine an outcome and then I do it. And I, I do so premised on, well, my understanding of way, what I think may happen, knowing full well it might not happen. But I think, and again, I think this is a lot of where my own understanding of, of uh, you know, maybe the nature of, of the country that I was doing this in, based on my own understanding and having spent a number of years looking at it very critically um, through an academic lens, historically, but also just as, a, as someone who's living in the country and just observing people and dynamics, thinking about, you know, what, what could that mean? What could that feel like? And not being sure, of course, but then having an imagination of an outcome and kind of seeing it <laughs> happen. Um, having the dedication to yeah. see through. Well, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's also rewarding. It's really rewarding. Like, it feels mm -hmm. good. You know, it just feels good. It's like, not like, oh, I was right. It's not so much that. <laughs> it is more like, it's like, oh, it's like, because there's many things that happened that I, I never would have imagined. You know? But I think I was just running with it. I was just running with it and seeing seeing things happen and then saying, okay, that's very interesting. What if now this were to also be a added set of dimensions to you know, present people or allow people to think about how they want to present themselves or all of those things. But yeah, I mean, again, to answer your question, I think the underlying construction of it was, was conscious, you know, why those spaces? Well, because I think that's what would allow people to retain a memory um, of what had happened that day or that early evening. And um, it might very well affect their own capacity to take risks because if they see somebody doing something like that, they might feel also inspired to do something similar. And I think that was, that's, that was the underlying kind of, I mean, there are many, but yeah. And one of the things was that like, could this possibly inspire other people to like maybe make more music or do their own events or whatever it might be, might it kind of serve as a, as a, uh, as a reference for people to say, Hey, well that happened. So why can't I do that? You know? Mm -hmm. What do you think about the current music scene? It's hard to gauge because, I mean, I listen, um, but I think I'm still uh, a live music person. Hmm. Um, There's a certain but charm I'm also, to like live music, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's the vulnerability. It's, you know, that for me, it's that. I'm drawn to that. <laughs> and that might sound a bit strange, but it's true. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that I internalize when I bear witness to somebody on stage making music and he or she is either completely owning it or completely awkward, but goes through with it anyway, sees it through, you know, whatever it might be, it's, it's can be scary to present your ideas like that to you know, either sober or not so sober public. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, 
I, 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 I do miss that. And I also just like PAs. I mean, I like, I like it to be loud. I want to feel it. All that is there too. But um, yeah, I mean, I haven't experienced that in a, in a while, at least not very often. But in terms of what's happening, I mean, gosh, I mean, there's, there's a lot happening that, you know, from, from where I'm looking at that I find very exciting. I see these kind of pockets forming and more and more people forming their own sort of like, I don't know, collectives or labels or just kind of organizing amongst themselves, you know, and, and, and releasing it on their own terms and finding other people to help them release it and creating, I mean, visual art to support it, you know, some more dedicated than others, but still, you know, it's, it's just really cool. And, and I think for me, from my perspective, maybe it just reflects my own taste, but a lot of it is just music that I don't think like six years ago would, would exist. I don't know. Maybe it would. Who's, who's say? Of course, probably it would. I'm not sure. There's so many factors, but I like it. Like I just, I like the way it sounds and I like the way it looks. And I, I like the overarching kind of sentiment as I take away from it about what it means. Um, you know? So that way, yeah, it's, it's, it's remains terribly exciting for sure. I think it's just going to, you know, but I think, you know, once live shows start in particular, it'll also just take on a whole new, um, whole new, a whole new speed, I guess. It's hard to say. It's the, it's the cliche at this point, but I do think the past year and a half has has served to keep, you know to allow people to think about what they're doing, and try new things, all of that. But, so as to how that will not play out in a you know, public front facing <clears throat> exhibition model, I don't know what to call it. Concerts, um, yeah, be interesting. What advice would you give to people who are just starting out? like who are skeptical about their work or whatever i think you just have to be relentless i think you just have to do it a lot <laughs> um over and over again and um somehow somehow convince yourself that it is worth it even though it might seem that no one cares <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's where i think i think that's where <clears throat> having a community of people around you really helps which is also why i think a lot of people i mean there's many reasons but you know, why certain um, groups of people are coming together and, and releasing music together. Um, I think that helps a lot when you are there to reinforce each other's insecurities in a positive way, like to, to not fall prey to them and say like, you know, we're doing this, we're doing it together. So kind of like, don't be afraid maybe, you know, because it is scary. I think it, it, that helps. And some people just do it anyway. Some people are just their own machine and they just do it and they don't, listen to anybody and don't care and they're just like <laughs> mercenary like maniacs there's that too but um yeah i i think it's uh it's nice to see that maybe that that scale of risk taking to present something uh to a public using a signature style that you feel passionate about regardless of what the market clearly expects that takes a lot of guts and um the decisions that people make to do that uh, remain fascinating to me again maybe because of my you know, predilection towards certain questions that i've thought about a lot um but it speaks to me and in terms of music or any kind of creative art form when i see that i uh, i recognize it as much as i you know uh, have internalized what that might mean and clearly have my own biases and all of that but yeah i, I do i see something and i feel something and i can't deny that because i do and um when that happens, I'm drawn to it. So there's just more and more of that happening, I think. And, and for a variety of reasons, you know, I, I couldn't 
even begin to estimate all the reasons as to why, you know, maybe the internet, maybe the pandemic, maybe just gravities of music and trends and so many things, you know, <clears throat> but for whatever reasons it might be. Yeah. And, uh, and it's also really cool to see people who may have performed at, you know, at events that we've produced, um, you know, kind of also just doing more stuff and changing and it's all very exciting as well. I think it's like, you know, it's very, it's very, I'm very fortunate that way in that, um, I guess for all the events that we've done, um, I've always had to play a, a, a role. So I was involved with all of them. So I can intimately recall details of all of those events. Even if I wasn't there, I would have to speak to these people individually and understand what they wanted to do. And all of that just, it's very, you know, it's very precious because it's just allowed me these remarkable conversations and these insights into people's lives. And, and they've given me their, their, their time to speak to me and, and tell me how they feel. And, you know, it's a big deal to me. Um, and it really does offer an insight into like what could be possible again, in terms of um, just how people negotiate these spaces and why they do it and how I can relate that to my own life. You know? So it's also very personal um, because it's just, it is rewarding. It's deeply fascinating. Do you ever get an artist block of sorts? How do you deal with it? What is the best way to deal with it? Um, yeah, I, okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to replace the word artist block with procrastination. Oh, wow. Okay. That's harsh, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you just, you just have to somehow just punch yourself in the face and get over it basically. Cause no one else cares, right? Mm, it's your problem. True. So you know, no one, no one gives a shit that you're like unable to create for whatever reason, and they shouldn't. Also, well, it's not their problem, right? Who cares? It's really up to you. Um, it's your work. So it's your life. That's it's true. your, it's your legacy. It's your life. It's your, you know, it's the decisions that you make. They're yours. Yours alone. You're in control of them. If you wish, if you act upon your instincts and don't dwell too much on your intellect, maybe something will happen. And if not, well, we're not sure. But hey. What do I know? I mean, you're asking me a question. That's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't, you, you'll probably feel stupid, basically. I mean, not you, but, you know, what? An individual yeah. would feel stupid at the end of the day. Yeah, because then you start going to that whole, like, really boring specter of regret and self-loathing and, oh, the I didn't do it spiral, then and now yeah. it's too late. And, and it's just like, it's just, you know, it's just... I mean, it's great for the, you know, the context of tragedy and literature, and song, but as a lived experience, it's kind of boring. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, my last question to you is, if you could say something to your past self, what would it be? Yeah. Make stuff. Oh, wow. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's like, well, my, what do you mean by that? Past in terms of yesterday or like years ago? Or, like a few years know, like, back. Oh, a few years back? Yeah. Oh, okay. Like how many years back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll have to think. No, I don't know. Like, I mean. So 15 yeah, years back. Oh, okay. Yeah, make stuff. Sure. I don't know. Uh, I, I would say 15 years ago, I didn't really have any context to... Um, 
to, to, of, of peerage of people around me who are making stuff, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, you know, most of my peers, uh, growing up in Canada who I love dearly and we're still very close, lucky and fortunate that way that I, well, I've also, you know, you make an effort to do these things, maintain relationships, but, um, you know, they, they, they lead very different lives from a lot of my peers in India, you know, they're in finance or in IT, uh, they're married, they have kids, um, they have multi-million dollar houses or not. They have their own struggles, of course, but, you know, and that's fantastic. Um, but they're not like creatively inclined by profession. I can't think of one, actually. Whereas most of my peers in India, and, that, and there's a reason for that also, just because of a certain circle of people I fell into uh, when I was living in Bombay. Mm-hmm. Artists. Yeah, just kind of happened by virtue of this uh, woman that I was seeing. Yeah, I, that really kind of served to, an insight into to a very different way of living one's life but yeah 15 years ago i i never would have like considered anything remotely close to a career path where i was making stuff but i suppose i would tell myself 15 years ago to make stuff because it's nice and it's really rewarding <laughs> and it's just unlike anything else so but i probably wouldn't listen to myself anyway that's pretty stubborn i still am all right, Rana, uh, that's the end of our meeting. But thank you so much for doing this. I'm so I'm so glad that I could fire some of these questions at you. And it's always nice to talk to you. So, yeah. Yeah, real pleasure. Always, you know. Um, take care of yourself. Thanks for taking the time. Have a happy journey. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>